Welcome to the sixth of Analytics podcasts on the nature of investment skill. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the impact and the role that data analytics is now having on the due diligence process when investors are looking for and assessing the investment skill of third-party managers. As with the other episodes, I'm fortunately joined um, with Tim Hartness, the data scientist and um, sports psychologist. So the overarching theme of this podcast is separating luck from skill. And as we've discussed on many occasions, the traditional tools that people use to do this have really let them down in the past. Um, People refer to past track records, but they say a lot about the past, but they say nothing about the skills which produce them. And they still leave unanswered the question as to whether it was down to luck or skill. And secondly, uh, a lot of the interviewing techniques around what the industry refers to as, as people, philosophy, process and philosophy are great because you need to know those things. But they're statements of belief and are not directly and intimately associated with the question of whether skill exists. The industry is left in the very difficult position of needing to determine and identify investment skill, but traditionally the tools for that just simply haven't worked. And in order to illustrate the point, I think it's worth actually just giving a a fictitious, um, almost a sort of scenario where we've got two individuals Um, And before I start, it it has to be said that that these are completely fictitious um, and they bear no resemblance to any actual individuals. And um, having borrowed a line from the film industry, I think it's particularly appropriate here. We've got one individual who is very confident. They talk well. They went to all the right schools. They can articulate their process extremely well and also have good numbers. And the second individual also has good numbers, but doesn't quite share the same positive attributes as his peer in the sense that maybe he's more uh, retiring and perhaps even struggles to articulate what he's really thinking and doing at any point in time. So how how does someone who's only meeting these people for the first time How do they differentiate between one and the other? Such an interesting question, Rick, that we need a Hollywood disclaimer before we can try to answer it. Now, Tim, is there there a parallel in your world where people make judgments about about sports people based on criteria rather than skill? Well, of course, Rick, that's part of the fun of being a sports fan is that you get to make consequence-free judgments about players and skill. But... Uh, If you take uh, professional football scouts, for example, these are people who will be held accountable for the decisions and the judgments that they make. And one of the big changes that I've seen in my 12 years in elite professional football has been the increase in rigor that the scouts use to make their decisions. And Rick, in our world, we also have your two characters. We've got the scout who uh, talks a talk Uh, is very confident, comes to decisions quickly. And we've got a new breed of scout who maybe uh, doesn't make quite as much noise, maybe takes a longer time to form an opinion, but is doing so uh, with a more careful, deliberate methodology. 
And the danger is that they're both producing opinions. And the end point of these opinions, which is a recommendation, can look very similar. How do you tell who is making the skillful judgment? That's the danger. And, and of course, you use the word danger. And of course, it's entirely appropriate because there may be other players who are more skillful and that therefore there is the possibility that, that you could have missed out on some players. And that's what you know, this podcast is really about. It's about driving to, a, to, driving to a solution where you're actually selecting people on criteria that matter. So Rick, the one thing we've got to be able to do is detect the relevant skills. And the other thing we've got to do is be able to tell the difference between skill and luck. I've actually heard very senior people say, well, give me a, you know, a lucky fund manager any day. And they quote Napoleon, who was supposed, who's supposed to have said it. But actually, he meant the complete opposite. And that what he was actually asking was about a general who had previously or who'd won the previous battle. And he was concerned that he might have won it just because he was lucky. I go with the, the fact that he, that he was misquoted because he was a genius in many ways. And, um, and I think he was someone who would have known, he would have been able to tell the, the difference between luck and skill. And that's obviously relevant in your world and in my world, Rick, that we need to be able to tell the difference between luck and skill. So where do we start? I want to actually turn to your excellent book, and I'm saying it's an excellent book because it is, not because you're on the podcast, The Ten Thanks, Rules Rick. for Talking. Um, and in one of the chapters, you raise the issue of, and the, the critical issue of rigour. Yes, chapter seven. And what, what I'd like to do is, is focus on that chapter in particular and the importance of rigour and the role that it plays in separating luck from judgment. So, Tim, what I'd like to do is, is, is hand over to you um, to talk about, you know, talk about, you know, what you mean by rigour and, and, you know, and talk about some of the concepts that you introduce us to. So the thing with rigour is rigour refers to a methodology. Now, one of the great things that Daniel Kahneman said about human beings is that our minds are machines for jumping to conclusions, that we're extremely good at forming fast assumptions about things. That's part of our mental tool set is this ability to reach fast and mostly accurate conclusions quickly. But we've got a whole other skill set as well, and that is the ability to think slowly and carefully. And what this does really is this separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom in that we have this ability to reflect slowly and that means that we can apply a method. And applying a method to our process of forming conclusions allows us an enhanced level of accuracy and error checking. And that is the essence of rigor, is that I am applying a repeatable method to a process. That this method, um, you know, because there are lots and lots of methods, but in specifically on the topic that we're dealing with, presumably this method would have to have a known association with the thing that you're trying to achieve, which is in this case, identify skill. So it's, so there is an alignment between the method and the objective that you're undertaking. Yes, that's a really important point, Rick, that you've got to know that the method works. 
And this applies to anything. In fact, this is something Tiger Woods, when he was in his peak, he said of his own golf game is that he said, when I'm under pressure, I know what to do and I know that it works. And Rick, this is something I've enjoyed over the five or more years that we've worked together is watching the continued development of a method for assessing investment skill. An explicit, repeatable method. And that method needs to be wholly associated and tied to the outcome, which the topic of this discussion is identifying skill. But before we get into how to identify skill in, in, in a rigorous way, perhaps it would be helpful if you, if you just sort of talk about the method itself, yes. And Rick, we may as well call this method what it is. It's the scientific method. But it doesn't just belong in a laboratory. We need to use the principles in our everyday lives also, especially when the conclusions that we draw are really going to matter. Now, in summary, the method is about two things. It's about the collection and the use of facts. When I collect facts, I need to be sure that these facts are credible. I need to be sure that they're reliable. And I need to be sure that the facts are complete, that I've got all of them, because a single fact or a group of facts can do more harm than good. Once I've got my facts, I need to theorize. So I need to tell a story about the world. I need to hypothesize. I need to collect the facts together in a way that makes sense. But once I've got my theory, there's another crucial step. And that is that I test. I take my theory and I make further observations. Bearing in mind that as a human being, I have a bias to naturally look for the facts that I agree with. I've got to overcome that bias and look again for all of the facts because what I'm looking to do now is to challenge, to change, possibly even reject my theory. And it's when I've done that, when I've repeated that process again and again, I'm iterating my understanding of the world and getting closer and closer to the truth. And the cycle is described by two words. Um, on the one hand, we've got the process of moving from a particular set of observations to a general theory. And that process is called induction. So when I produce a theory, I induce. The second process is the process of going from a general observation or a theory to a specific conclusion. And that process is called deduction. And a, a way that it might work is I, I may um, go to Brazil and I may see a lot of uh, good footballers in Brazil. So I've made a set of observations. I've seen lots of good footballers in Brazil. And my induction is that Brazilian footballers are good. So I've moved from the specific to the general. Then I travel to Europe and I bump into somebody who's a Brazilian. And I think to myself, well, the general principle is that Brazilian footballers are good. This person is Brazilian, therefore he must be good at football. And that is a deduction when I move from the general to the particular. And this process of moving from the general to the particular is something that we as human beings are very ready to do, but we're not always terribly good at it. And this is when instead of using deduction, moving from the general to the particular, I should open my eyes 
make a rigorous observation about what it is in front of me and use that new fact to induce a more complex or a different theory. Your database has been described as the largest and cleanest of its kind in the world. You've written a viral paper called Selling Fast and Buying Slow. Won't you tell us a little bit about how you use evidence? Everything that we do starts with evidence. Essentially, we've used, I suppose, you know, our own experience and knowledge of, you know, the industry, mine in my case, over 40 years. But essentially, we've drawn on this data to establish what we believe to be the four criteria for skill, and which it's more than a set of belief. It's, it's a set where we can demonstrate um, empirically the association with if you're good at this, then, you, then, you, then you're skillful. And these four criteria describe the process by which fund managers add value. And the first of these criteria is having a research process which which investigates ideas and adds the best of them to the portfolio. Now, research is the absolute cornerstone and foundation of any investment process. And, and, if, and if the research process isn't working, then it's very, very difficult to, to um, add value. But, you know, conversely and more powerfully... We've established empirically through our latest research is that 82% of the of the of the um, the strategies which have added value are associated with a strong research process. So this is not just some random association. It's not a spurious connection. This is 82% of the portfolios which have added value can demonstrate strong research. And that's the first of the criteria, and it's not surprisingly where I start. And then the second of the criteria is is the ability to what the industry calls size these positions, but basically to back them with conviction, because there's no point having a great idea if you don't back back it with conviction, because otherwise you could have a good idea, but you, it's really not no use to man nor beast. You've got to be able to to, to drive the 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 returns of the portfolio through these good ideas and then thirdly the third and fourth are things to sort of avoid um, the third one being the subject of the um, selling fast buying slow paper which showed that a lot of the, the the added value which is generated through great research and the ability to back those ideas with conviction is then dissipated through lazy selling decisions. And that equates in our terms to about 1% per annum. And then the final criteria is to avoid the situation where your long-term holdings get past their sell-by date and actually then just um, start losing value. So, and, and by that, what I mean is that is that the research process has to be applied equally to finding new ideas and ensuring that that the portfolio remains um, fresh and that the ideas are, are still relevant and adding value. So, and and each of those cases, to come back to your method point, in each of those cases, we've tested it either through research, say on the on the on the selling fast, buying slow paper, or internal um, our own analysis of the importance of the research process. And also on the um, the investment horizons with a paper through the London Business School. So in all cases, we establish 
a direct link between a method which is evidence-based and that evidence-based method being directly associated with the thing that we are seeking to identify, which is investment skill. And that's what's really important here, is to have a method um, and a framework which is not just a bit of number crunching for the sake of it, is directly and can be evidenced um, and demonstrably associated with the thing that we're trying to seek, which is identify investment skill. And and I think in a lot of ways, you know, this, this conform, or well, I would certainly hope and believe it to be the case, that it conforms to your criteria for rigour. Well, that's an interesting question, Rick, because you're asking me to take a set of observations and see whether it matches the criteria for rigour. And what we're saying is, well, first of all, um, you have evidence. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we analyse every purchase, every sale, everything they own for every day as far as the data goes back. I mean, our trade data alone must be now approaching some, oh, I don't know, it's, it's certainly in excess of $15 trillion, which is the last time I looked. And the holdings data is a number which I can't describe because it's daily. And in a lot of cases, the the, the strategies that we analyse in some cases goes back to 2002. And virtually all of them are either three years in minimum and uh, mostly somewhere between five and ten years. But when you think that we're analysing literally every single investment decision that's taken during that time period, the absolute quantity of data that we analyse is absolutely enormous. And then when you then think that we're the number of portfolios that we're um, analysing each month, so you're you, you've got you start with a very large number for each portfolio, and you multiply that by the the number of portfolios we're analysing. You get you get a you, you get an extremely large number, and that's why my co-author said that we have the largest database of decisions. So I think we can say that that safely meets the requirements for a credible and complete set of facts. And then what you have is you have a method for understanding those facts. As you said, you have the, the ability to research, you have the ability to size, you have the ability to sell, and you have the ability to hold. And each of those you've demonstrated um, are relevant to uh, the outcomes that an investor is able to produce. So you have a, a method of relevant and proven investigations. So I think we can say with confidence that your methodology is a rigorous method. The method is one thing. We've got to keep in mind that, you know, we're all practical people and there has to be a point to this exercise. What we're really doing here when we're helping people identify skillful fund managers, it's a process in itself. We run the numbers and in the process of running the numbers, we identify the key issues, key issues being um, strengths and weaknesses. And, and what's absolutely important and critical is that clients use those, um, that data to ask really smart questions. So our process and our method in this world, Tim, is about running the numbers, identifying the strengths and weaknesses, and then drawing up really smart questions, questions which one client described that they would never otherwise be able to ask, or ones which perhaps, you know, the, the, the managers would not want to be asked. But that's not really the point. The, the, the point is that these are questions which absolutely 
are critically important, whether it's about the research process, whether it's about the long-term positions getting stale, whether it's about continued loss of continued loss of returns through lazy selling decisions. These are all really important questions. Once you've got the answer, you know, once you've listened to the answers, you can and you then have all the evidence and the questions which which is which they've posed, is that you can then take an informed judgment on whether someone is 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 skillful or whether they just got lucky. And and that, you know, ultimately is, you know, taking, you know, your framework for rigor, applying it in practice here, um, by starting with the data and ending with an informed decision. And and that informed decision can be taken with a confidence that the process and the method by which to arrive at that informed decision is based on data and evidence and a rigorous framework. And I'd, I would like to believe that, that, that having this method, this rigorous method, is so much stronger than hoping that a track record will repeat itself in the future and that, that a set of beliefs may or may not lead to added value in the future. That's so interesting, Rick. A really powerful practical illustration of how rigor can be applied. If we, it's very kind of you to say that. Now, Tim, this has been, you know, very good to sort of draw on the book. Um, what I'd quite like to do is is deal with the issue of complexity next on in the next podcast. Absolutely, Rick. And there's that quote that for every complex and important problem in the world, there is a solution that is simple, popular, and wrong. And, you know, this is the thing, is that we need complex understandings of a complex world. And while the simple has this innate appeal, actually, as human beings, we can comprehend complexity. It takes a little more effort, but it's worth it and we need to do it. Thanks for having me, Rick. Thank you. Thank you, too. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>